Hello and welcome to episode 10 of God's Own Scale podcast. We've reached double figures, who would have thought it? In this episode, I talk to Mr. Alex Sotheran, archaeologist by profession and wargamer in his spare time, and also the creator of the Storm of Steel YouTube channel, which I highly recommend you go and check out. Been a fan of Alex's YouTube channel for some time, especially his battle reports using square bashing by Peter Pig, one of my favourite sets of rules to recreate the battles of the First World War. We talk about his professional work in archaeology and also his work on various sites on the Western Front before going on to talk about his 6mm recreation of Waterloo and Catrebra, which really caught my eye. I have a couple of things I want to talk about myself, but I'll leave them until after the interview. So for now, sit back, relax with a nice mug of tea and a couple of digestive biscuits as we talk about six. Mademoiselle from Okay, welcome to, uh, I think this is actually episode 10 of God's Own Scale. Uh, I think it is. Um, and I've got a guest with me uh, who I've been following and stalking online uh, for a few years now uh, through his blog, Storm of Steel. I've got Mr. Alex Sothering with me. Hello, Alex. Nice, Sean. Nice to be here. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> well, uh, you, you were on the hit list. Uh, I've got <laughs> Quite a long hit list, and, and you're on it. I don't on know it. if that's a good or a bad thing, is it? <laughs> in, in this context, uh, let's say it's a good thing. <laughs> um, don't worry, there's no red dot on your back anywhere. Don't good, worry. good, good, good. <laughs> um, I'll keep checking just in case. Yeah, yeah, please do. Um, I've reached out to you, Alex, because um, the, I first came to know about your work through um, your blog, Storm of Steel, and then subsequently. Mm. Uh, you'd move on to the YouTube channels as well, uh, in which you've been doing lots of um, get battle reports, but also some historical pieces as well, haven't you? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I just want just uh, for those out there who might not uh, have been to your blog, been to your YouTube channel, or indeed know who Alex Sotheran is, can we just have a, a little bit of a, a background, uh, hobby-wise, uh, to to what's got you to this stage? Yeah, sure. I mean, well. It's been a long time coming. This really, to be honest, it's been a long, long time getting here. I, I started wargaming, I suppose, um, when I was about twelve or thirteen. Uh, I'm forty-five now, so I've been wargaming for about thirty years, thereabouts. Um, I started off because I used to collect the old plastic Esky figures. Is it Esky or Eshi? I never really said it out loud. I've always uh, said Esky, yes, but yeah. I'll stand to be corrected. Uh, but either or, I, I used to collect the, the Napoleonic figures years and years ago, you know, when I was a kid. I didn't really know what to do with them apart from set them up as, you know, in battle scenes. And that was uh, do a little bit of painting on the stuff. And then when I went to comprehensive, uh, comprehensive school, I ended up uh, giving a class talk about them because, you know, we had to do those show and tell kind of things in, in English, I think. And I took these figures in. And uh, one of the lads in the class just mentioned wargaming to me. I had no idea what it was at the time. Never, never come across it before. But he mentioned that he did uh, six mil micro tanks, and he introduced me to that. And that was probably one of my first wargaming experiences. Was actually six mil anyway. 
so you know we had loads and loads of micro second world war micro tanks that we used to uh, play games with and then that kind of developed really into getting more into stuff like 50 mil figures and things and the second world war stuff as i was uh, getting older oh one one big thing i think when we were at school is we actually had a little war gaming club that was by our uh, run by our history teacher yeah uh it was a way of him staying in and, and marking his books rather, I think, than uh, than going in the staff room. But basically, you know, he used he was a war gamer as well, still is. Uh, I suppose I really should uh, say Richard Jenkins was his name because he'll, he'll probably like a name check because I'm friends with him now on Facebook after all these years. Oh, brilliant. Uh, and he he kind of you know really let us us teenagers run wild in his classroom playing war games. You know, we used to do all sorts of stuff. So that was an, you know a nice little introduction to it as well. But then as I kind of got older, really, you know, I, I, I stuck more with uh, with the bigger scale. So more 15 mil, I think, is is my main uh, main interest of uh, of gaming. And with a few little bits and pieces here and there, mostly it's 20th century stuff. And it's, so it's really Second World War and First World War. Yeah. And uh, with I, I play a lot of square bashing, I play a lot of... Um, now I'm playing a lot of the Lardy's rules. Yeah. I just had a drink. Uh, stuff like I Ain't Being Shot Mum and uh, Chain of Command. They, they've taken over quite a lot. But I played Rapid Fire for probably about 20 years at this point. We played that a lot, me and my friends. Uh, trying to give you a bit of a potted history. Then the, the, the idea for a blog came up after I'd been writing a personal blog uh, as part of my work, I ended up working in Iceland for a year. And because I was away, I, I wrote a friend suggested that I should write a blog about it, just the stuff that I saw and what I was up to. And I continued that for probably a couple of years. You know, it had really nothing to do with wargaming, but I kind of ran out of steam with it a bit. And then I was just thinking, you know, what else can I do? And and I kind of set up the Storm of Steel one just as a bit of a, a place to dump photos of, of figures that I'd painted and tanks and things more than anything else and it's now been running god i can't even remember when i started it it's probably you know a, a good getting on for a decade i think now wow. i just checked i think there's something like 700 posts on it yeah uh and it was just it's just a way of really just you know getting my stuff into a place so i was taking photographs of things so i could remember what i painted as much yeah. as anything else uh and how i'd painted them because i usually write down what what paints i'm using on things and uh that came, came around then about 18 months ago that i started the storm of steel youtube channel and <laughs> this is a very convoluted story but i've been a professional archaeologist for 20 years and i got to a point about four years ago where i was absolutely sick to death of it um for various reasons and i was just trying to find various routes out of uh, archaeology and working online and doing things online and a guy i knew who was also an archaeology student i uh, taught him as a supervisor at an archaeological excavation uh, he'd set up a a youtube channel he called himself three-year millionaire and i was following this guy 
this sounds very strange and convoluted, but stick with it. <laughs> and I was kind of following him, and he was his his idea was he was gonna he was gonna become a millionaire in three years off YouTube. <laughs> Interesting. He, he now he, I'm he, making he, notes now, Alex. I'm making notes. <laughs> <laughs> Suffice to say, he's not a millionaire. <laughs> ah, okay. And it's, I've and stopped it's making over, notes now. <laughs> and it's over four years. It's over four years later. Right. Okay. But uh, he now does archaeology. Um, he he does archaeology YouTube and he's and he's got a massive following, uh, but he was kind of the inspiration for go, for me going onto YouTube. And initially, I thought I thought about doing things about board games because I, you know, I love wargaming, but I also love board gaming as well. And you know, sometimes those two areas don't always overlap. There's a lot of board games or war games and vice versa, but yes. they can be quite separate. Yeah, and I love both aspects of both of them, and. I kind of thought the YouTube channel could be more towards board gaming initially when I set it up because I was watching a lot of board gamer YouTube channels anyway. Um, things like uh, Shut Up and Sit Down. There's some big channels out there that are yeah. quite interesting. And but I, I, I kind of realised that 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 that's area was was pretty flooded with with uh, board games already. There's there's millions of channels out there. However, the war gaming stuff was getting more traction. You know, whenever I was posting that kind of stuff, more yes. more, speci- more specific to historical wargaming, it was getting more traction in the views and things. So I kind of made the decision probably about, I don't know, about a year or so ago to be a little bit more specific with the wargaming on the on the channel itself. And, you know, it, it's grown quite, quite largely in the last 18 months, you know, from what is a pre- pretty niche interest. You know, I think we're all we we all recognise that as wargaming is pretty niche, isn't it? Yes. Uh, and then historical wargaming is is a niche within that. You know, if I, yeah. if you want the big big audience figures, go for something like Warhammer 40k or something. You know, but yes. uh, the fact that you know there's there's people that are subscribing to the channel and they seem to be sticking around and making comments on things, and it all seems to be pretty positive. You know, there's you always get the occasional comments here and there, mm. but I also. As well, you know, because of my interest in military history anyway, I kind of wanted to do some, just a few military history videos as a kind of like a sideline as part of the, the Storm of Steel wargaming output. Yeah. And so I've done some of those as well. But yeah, that kind of, I suppose that kind of brings me to where I am now. It seems a little bit convoluted. But yeah, I've been a wargamer for 30 years. I've gone through quite a lot of different scales, stick, stuck pretty much with, with 15 mil. And I know you want to talk about it later on, but I do the six mil Napoleonic stuff, but we we can talk about that a bit more uh, later yes. in more detail. Uh, but yes, yeah, so, I mean that's that's as much as I can tell you. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's that's my, great. my story is right here, really. I guess that's, no. that kind of brings me up to up to speed. Yeah. So um, you've been YouTubing then for just over twelve months, then you say about eighteen months. Uh, eighteen months. I started in January. Of last year, so yeah, it's just it's coming up on eighteen months, I guess. Okay, so halfway to the million. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, less less said about that, the better, I guess. Yeah. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I, th- I think yeah, you're right. Stefan, Stefan's definitely not a millionaire, but <laughs> if if you were doing forty k, you might be halfway there, I guess. Yeah, so maybe, maybe. <laughs> some of those YouTube channels do seem to be uh, going great guns with. Uh, tens of thousands of followers but um oh, you're right. I mean, yeah it's just, it's a brilliant way to to get things out 
yeah. you know, it's a, it's a great way for people to connect with with others, especially during this lockdown as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I think, think it's growing, I'd... isn't it? It's growing the, the mm. YouTube community out there. Um, yeah. I think there's, there's probably only a, a real handful of regular historical uh, YouTube channels that uh, are doing the sort of thing that you're doing. Um, mm. there's, there's lots of unboxings isn't there um, um there's, there's a few after action report uh, sorry battle reports on there yeah but a lot of it is tended towards the fantasy science fiction side of things yeah uh, definitely definitely uh, but i do think it's growing and i think i think there is an audience out there for it um, mm. i mean i certainly I, i'd much rather spend a night in, in front of youtube uh, <laughs> looking through uh you know wargaming videos than I would in front of the the TV, to be honest. But uh, yeah, absolutely. I find myself watching YouTube more and more these days than than anything else. Yeah, and it's not just because I'm on it. I just there's there's more there's more interesting things on there. Yeah, you can find almost anything you want, can't you? Like you say, yeah. even from bo- unboxing through to full battle reports and that kind of stuff. You know. Yeah. So um, you mentioned about your archaeology. You've been a professional archaeologist for twenty years. Are you still a, a working archaeologist? Yes, I am. Uh, I now work for the Ministry of Defence or Defence Infrastructure Organisation, which nobody's ever heard of. So it's easy to say Ministry of (laughs) Defence. I wouldn't have had a clue if you'd used that. (laughs) Uh, The DIO, Defence Infrastructure Organisation, basically um, facilitates training on the MOD estate. So we're a, we're like a layer just below the the MOD really, and we we facilitate it. As part of that, I'm I'm part of a team of uh, the historic environment team. So we are archaeologists and building experts. And there's, I think we the MOD own 1.8% of the UK. We're one of the biggest landowners. Uh, on that land, we have. I'm going to give you the uh, the rundown here. We have. Off the top of my head, 700 scheduled monuments, over 800 listed buildings, over 10,000 archaeological remains, and the six of us to deal with it all. <laughs> Goodness me. So <laughs> That's a we lot. have a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You're a busy so guy. We, <laughs> so we have, there's four archaeologists and there's two buildings experts. Right. And uh, we... We cover basically everything in the UK. My, myself and my colleague, Phil, we cover the north and Scotland. And then our colleague, uh, Guy, he covers the south and Wales. And then our line manager, Richard Osgood, who uh, also came up with Operation Nightingale, which I'll, t- I'll talk about in a second. Uh, he covers Salisbury Plain, so he's got his work cut out for him as well. Yeah. And then we have the two buildings, uh, Chris and Catherine, and they both cover the the entire UK between them and so basically what we do is we we look after the heritage assets on the training estate we are part of that team you know we're part of a wider uh, ecology team as well and forestry team and planners uh, all part of the dio we all work together as an integrated team dealing with each other you know on a daily basis and, and yeah. all the different issues that they bring and one of the other aspects of that job is uh, I, I work, we, we do a thing called Operation Nightingale, where, uh, which as I mentioned was set up by Richard, uh, I think about 10 years ago. And it basically, it engages uh, veterans suffering from things like PTSD and 
physical injury and it has the we we basically get them involved in archaeology as a pathway to recovery uh you know as part of their therapy uh, they get they get dealt with they get uh, sent through to us through a company called Breaking Ground Heritage generally who who's which is run by an ex-veteran himself uh, he set it up after coming on an Operation Nightingale project and basically uh, we have uh, these groups of guys who've never done archaeology before teach them new uh, methods to give them new skills uh, also just get them involved with um, with teamwork again and archaeology is really good for for things like PTSD because it, you, you have to concentrate on what you're doing. You know, you really have to hone in on the job at hand and pay a lot of attention. So your mind doesn't drift so much. I mean, this, you know, I'm talking to as somebody who doesn't suffer from PTSD, thankfully. But a lot of the guys have, you know, have said and there's a, a growing body of evidence that, uh, that, you know, this is real improvement in their lives. And quite a few of the guys have actually gone on, and I say guys because they are mostly men. There's a, a few women, but it's mostly men. A few have actually gone on to study archaeology at university, and some are still working in are working in commercial archaeology now. So, you know, they've been given new skills through Operation Nightingale. Really, it's uh, something that we're particularly proud of as a group, you know, and it's something that we enjoy doing as well. Yeah. So. That's that's incredible. I mean, I'm fascinated as an armchair historian. I'm, I'm fascinated mm. uh, by archaeology, and I, I, I knew that um, you, you do archaeological work, but that, mm. that went off on a on a strand that I wasn't expecting. That's, that's <laughs> in, well, no, in a good way. You know, that's, yeah. that's incredible that um, you're you're providing that service to the veterans, um, mm. and that then they pick. Some of them are picking it up and, and, and moving on as a, a career. Within yeah, that yeah, absolutely. That must be incredibly rewarding. Yeah, um, it's great to see it when it happens, you know. Is that something similar to what Waterloo Uncovered do? Do they, they have... Um, yeah, they are, the, they are of a similar type, but they're specific on Waterloo. Yes. Um, obviously, it says in the name. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they, they do the same thing. They take veterans and they're... And they're uh, giving them again pathways to to recovery is the best way to put it because you know the thing is i i do always say with operation nightingale is you know it's not a cure we we, you know we never set out to cure anybody and uh you know you're not going to come to an operation nightingale project or indeed probably waterloo uncovered and uh you know expect to be cured by the end of the week it's not it's it's just a way of of treating people on the way to recovery you know it's 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 something that that helps is is kind of what we say but yeah it's the same kind of thing um i do a similar job as well because that's part-time i have another part-time job uh because i work share in the mod Uh, i have a part-time job as well with the sheffield and rotherham wildlife trust which is close to where i live and there i'm a community archaeologist uh working in a particular area on the edge of sheffield getting people involved in their local history and archaeology and again that is all volunteer-led you know we set up projects doing surveys or we i say i set up projects doing surveys of particular areas and then we'll get you know 10 12 volunteers in to come and and do the work and create a report from that for instance yeah and that again is equally equally rewarding because it gives people a real insight into their local history and their heritage as well you know you get people really enthusiastic about this stuff that's that's incredible 
um, I mean, his, his, as an armchair historian, I concentrate, you know, principally on military history and, and wars mm. and things. But his history and archaeology is obviously so so much wider than that, mm-hmm. isn't it? And, and local history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a local history group to to where I live, and I live mm. probably half a mile away from the Bloor Heath battlefield, right? Um, which is privately owned, but uh, okay. there's, there's a small group um, that are, are allowed on that land, uh, and I'm, I'm part of that sort of association, if you like. The, the, right. the farmers that own the land um, are uh, their children children go to the same school as my daughter so oh, okay. uh, we've okay. got that sort of link in and it's it's a really it, it's a real community spirited thing and for you to get those people involved uh, through your professional work and and, and get them mm. interested in the surroundings and the history that surround them as well uh, yeah it, it, it must be really rewarding um the, the archaeology uh, yeah work, sorry go on. sorry carry on I was just going to say that when I mentioned four years ago when I was looking as an out of archaeology, that's when I was working in commercial archaeology, which is a world apart from what I'm doing now, because that is that's more developer led. And that's what I'd done for the previous 16 years. Yeah. And, you know, the way the reason I was looking for an out then is because I'd spent six months staring at two diggers taking topsoil off uh, a massive field with nothing underneath it. And, okay. you know, I, I had to wake up every morning and go and do that, knowing full well there was going to, you know, very little chance of anything being there. But yes. just having to monitor these machines. And uh, that's why I was looking for an out. Ah. My my two jobs now are literally worlds apart from that. And, you know, yeah. they're, they're both jobs that I really enjoy doing and get enthusiastic about, you know, when I'm talking about them. Yeah, I, I mean, it comes across in your voice, Alex, absolutely. And I, I can I can understand standing <laughs> in a field looking at two diggers must be must have been soldier strength. At times. <laughs> it was it was. Yeah, it's not exactly a trowel, is it? That way you're scraping <laughs> no. away. <laughs> no, there's right. very little interest. <laughs> um, am I right in thinking then that um, the battlefield at Edge Hill is on MOD property, and is is that anything to do with the, the work that you're involved in or people that you know? Um, I'm not sure to be honest because Edge Hill's um, if it's, it's down south, isn't it? It's Warwickshire, I'm, I'm, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that will be uh, my uh, colleague Guy's area right. because yeah. he basically the north for the MOD is anything above Lincoln. Right. So anything below that is out of my eye line, really. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if it's on MOD land. You could be right. I know we do have some battlefield registered battlefields on MOD land, but I've never actually looked into which ones they are. So. You could be right, and uh, I'm showing myself up now. I should know this stuff. <laughs> well, editing is a powerful tool, Alex. Don't worry. <laughs> I don't think we, I'll get fired, but <laughs> no, mate, don't worry. We'll uh, we can chop and change a, a little bits in, in the recording. I very rarely do that, mate, but <laughs> I'm telling no, you that now, so you stay on the call. <laughs> don't worry about it. I I I operate in the north of Scotland. I know nothing about anything south of Lincoln. <laughs> Right. So um, the archaeological work then, I, I became aware of that involving yourself because of um, your blog talking about the First World War and uh, mm. France. And uh, was it the Somme that you were on or have you done Belgium as well? Or? Both, both. Um, this is something else that's been separate to my archaeological career. Uh, I got involved back in 2003. I went to a 
Battlefield Archaeology Conference at the National Army Museum that was uh, set up by, I think it was Martin Brown and uh, Andy Robertshaw at the time, uh, when Andy Robertshaw was working in the National Army Museum. And I think people probably know him from TV. He's, yes. uh, yeah, you probably know the name. He, uh, one of the speakers was a guy uh, who was talking about a place called Ocean Villas or Ocean in, in on the Somme. And it's a little tea room uh, run by Avril. And if anybody's been to the Somme, they most likely have either stopped at Ocean Villas or they know who Avril is because she's one of the personalities of the, the area. And um, in her back garden, there was a communication trench, British communication trench that ran through. And she'd asked a group of archaeologists to come along and basically she fed and watered them, but they excavated it uh, to archaeological standards and, you know, kept it open so she could use it as a tourist uh, destination, I suppose. Yeah. And I went to this conference. This guy was talking about it, Alistair. And I approached him afterwards and said, look, I'm an archaeologist because I was working in the field at that point, field archaeologist. And I said, I'm interested in, in getting involved, to be honest, you know, just to come along and do some digging with you guys. And uh, I heard nothing for ages. Then all, all of a sudden, out of the blue, uh, I get this message just saying, are you still interested? I said, yeah, OK, I'll, I'll come along. Jumped in uh, on a plane, jumped in a taxi, got up to Ocean Villas, didn't know anybody. And then just basically ended up working with those guys. That, it was a group of volunteers. The At the time, they were called the Trench Team, which was an awful name. <laughs> uh, but then uh, that was soon changed to what was called No Man's Land. And we okay. became a, a group then, a, a, an actual group of people, and a lot of archaeologists in it. But we were all working basically off our own bat, really. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd work for free board, but we'd just go out for a week and go and do some excavation on interesting sites, you know, like Ocean Villas. But then we were asked by the BBC if we'd do a excavation at Serre, and this was in 2003. It was where Wilfred Owen had been fighting in 1917. And we excavated, I think we that's where we came across our first human remains. So we found a couple of German soldiers and a British soldier. Unfortunately, we were, for various reasons, we were unable to name the British soldier. But the two Germans, we ended up with names for both of those guys. So they're now buried in a German cemetery uh, I can't remember where it is. It's not close to the site, unfortunately, but they're buried in the, the German cemetery and they've got a, a named grave. Yeah. Uh, the British fellow, we knew his uh, regiment and off the top of my head, I can't remember what it was, but he's actually buried in Sayre Road Cemetery Number 2, which is about 100 yards away from where we actually found him. So he's really close to where he was killed in 1916. Yeah. Uh, and that was a little TV show that we did for the BBC. But then we were also approached as a team to go and work in Tietval Woods that had been bought up by the Somme Association that year. And they wanted to open up some of the trenches. The first were the trenches that the 36th Irish Division were fighting from on the, the 1st of July 1916, uh, first day of the Somme. And again, they wanted to turn that into a bit of a, a tourist attraction. Uh, if, if that's the right word. Yes, uh, <laughs> it's an interesting use of word, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is, I, yeah. I, I know there's been some debate about um, calling it these things tourist attractions or the yeah. uh, commemorative zones or, or whatever. Mm. Sorry, carry on. 
No, you're not wrong. Uh, but yeah, it's a commemorative zone is probably a better word for it, so mm. I think, a better description. And they, they were running out of the, the Ulster Tower, which, again, if anybody's been out to Tietval Memorial, you may have seen the Ulster Tower on the drive up, or you may have even stopped in there. But it's run by uh, the Somme Association in Belfast, and they were the ones that bought up the land. So we went as a team. We worked with uh, a lot of guys and girls from Northern Ireland who came across Again, most of these had never done any archaeology, so we were teaching them uh, how to do archaeology, how to record these sites as well. And that has been open to the public. And I think they, they've had, I, th- I can't remember, I think I would last figures I heard, there was been about 20,000 people through the site in a year. Wow. Because they have so many people coming out, uh, school kids largely you know as, as as tours and also a lot of the tours go through there and they they're free to visit you just have to go and uh, talk to the people at the tower i think they do two tours one in the morning one in the afternoon yeah. but they're free to get on and you can go around and see the trenches that we dug because they're still preserved and as far as i know uh, they are the only trenches on the western front that were actually uh, to actually been dug archaeologically right and, uh we all the materials that they've been revetted with, so all the wood and the, the chicken wire and the, the sandbags are all. We found all those kinds of materials when we were actually excavating them, so we know what they were using to revet the trenches in 1916. So they've been able to to replicate that, but with obviously modern examples. Yeah. Um, and we did that for nearly 10 years. We worked on that site about twice a year. So we'd go out for a, a week in Easter time and a week in uh autumn and for twice a year for for about 10 years and then that came to an end just through funding and things i think i think partially because of stormont uh closing down yes i think they have had had a had a a factor on the on the dry up of the funding unfortunately but i mean we've done a lot of work there anyway but then also i ended up uh with my now boss, Richard Osgood, ended up working in Mamet's Wood, or Mamet Wood, should I say. I always pronounce it the English way, Mamet's. Yeah. Apparently it's Mamet. Okay. You don't pronounce a Z on the end. Right. <laughs> and uh, we ended up working there looking at the Welsh positions of the, uh, the, sorry, the German positions that were attacked by the Welsh division uh, on the, oh, I think it's about the 10th or 11th of July, the date escapes me, Um just after the the opening of the Battle of the Somme, it's the areas where the the Somme was particularly successful in the south, yes. and they were pushing the advantage, and they sent in the Welsh, I think it's the 38th, and uh, that was a program, another TV program, that was done with um, uh, Gareth Thomas, the Welsh rugby star. Okay. Uh, that was back in 2015. I forgot to mention uh, the big thing that we did was finding the Fallen, which was a Canadian TV company, Yap they commissioned a couple of series of excavations with us as a team working on largely Canadian areas uh, of fighting. So this is where we ended up working in places in Belgium, at places like Forward Cottage outside of Ypres, a big shotter outside of Ypres, uh, did some excavations there. We also worked on places like Courcelette, uh, Bull on Wood for the Combray attacks, um, Quite a lot of different. I think I worked it out a couple of years ago. I think I worked on about twenty different battlefield sites wow. uh, as a as an archaeologist in the last what sixteen seventeen years now. An impressive and then, resume. 
<laughs> indeed and then it comes all the way up to now and the project i'm involved in is the one at bullocor which again is run by richard osgood and it's an operation nightingale project uh, which obviously I mentioned, uh, but this is looking for the tanks, the Mark II tanks that attacked in April of 1917 against the village of Bullocor as part of the um, battles of Arras. Yeah. Uh, it went in with the, the Australian divisions, I think 48th or something. I can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah. It's too many numbers in the First World War. Yeah. Uh, and these the uh, there's aerial photographs of these tanks where they were stopped by the German fire. Uh, the the attack was a, an abysmal failure, poor planning, bad weather. There were you know every factor you could throw at it was there, but these tanks were stopped as part of their advance. So uh, Richard had been able to plot from aerial photographs exactly on the ground, modern ground, where these things were. So we basically went looking for them. We knew the big hulks wouldn't be there, but uh, we ended up finding six foot length of tank track of wow. Mark II tank track, which is incredible. Yeah. You know, it's like literally finding a needle in a haystack. <laughs> yes. You know, <laughs> and it was right on the very edge of the trench as well. Really? And uh, I like to blow my own trumpet on this one. It's it's where I put the trench in. Uh, okay. <laughs> I was the one that decided where it went. Right. Uh, but see, because uh, uh, I was super, I was archaeology supervisor on the site. And um, but yeah, we found this this tank track, and then underneath there, there was the bodies of three Germans, oh, uh, which were laid out as well. And I think the tank track had been used to cover one of them up for whatever reason, right? Um, either to to mark a, a grave or to to be able to you know to 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 basically stop the body from stinking. I would have thought yeah. mm-hmm. any kind of thing like that. So uh, unfortunately, this year we've been unable to get out to Bullocor. Uh, we were out there last year, uh, the, almost exactly a year ago now, actually. Uh, I was looking at my photos, my memories on Facebook, and they were all on Bullocor yeah. uh, from last year. I was stood in the field where the Australians had attacked from. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, it was – so we're hoping to get back out there. It'll probably be next year this this time, I think. And, again, that is – it's pretty much done on our work on our work holiday time. It's done – you know, there's there's a tiny amount of money for food. And travel and that's as far as it goes you know but it's, it's basically a busman's holiday from yeah. my point of view but uh i i just love those areas i love i love that part of france it's a really nice place to visit anyway yes it's obviously also got the the added attraction of being first world war uh stuffed with first world war you know as soon as you put what, that, what sort of um i take it you need some sort of permission do you uh, from landowners or the the local authorities mm. you do in france yes well um basically to do any excavation you need to get uh permission from drac which sounds uh, more like a vampire than anything else but <laughs> he's, he's not <laughs> or they okay. are not. <laughs> uh, it's basically it's the, it's the local regional archaeologist right uh, we have the the equivalent here in the uk would be the county archaeologist who would work for the council and they generally make decisions in the planning process as to uh, what what needs to be done archaeologically before any developments or if, if any archaeological work is to go ahead, they say yes or no, basically. Uh, DRAC, I, I think, have a little bit more power in France because if they say no, then you definitely can't do it. And 
the the hard part is is keeping them on well not the hard part but the the the, the trickiest part is keeping them on side but they once they've seen what we did at Bullocor in the first year they are they're very happy with the work that we've done and they uh, richard is very good at getting the report to them in time because everything has to be written up obviously we create an archive one on site and that gets turned into a report that has to be deposited with drac you know so it's publicly available and they're very happy with all the work that we've done so it's a case of you know talking to them and just making sure they're still on side with us uh, getting them out to show them the sites so that you know they they know that what we're doing isn't uh, looting or isn't you know pulling things out of the ground to sell on eBay because yeah. metal detecting in France is illegal without a license. Yeah. So, you know, there's quite a lot of issues about people going onto the, the onto the, the battlefield areas and, and pulling stuff up with metal detectors. Mm-hmm. So when we show them that we're, you know, professional archaeologists that know what they're doing, it's a slightly different slant from their point of view. Sure. What about the um, the landowners though? I, I assume most of this is private land, is it farmed land? Yes, yeah. Again, it's it's private land, farmland generally. Um, but what you find out there, it, and this seems to be always true, is that the the locals are so interested in their own history because you know most of them probably a lot of them probably had you know family that lived there prior to the war and you know some of us just stayed around in those areas and they're so interested in this stuff like uh, a bullocor last year um the local fire chief at bullocor organized a barbecue for us wow and brought out a ton of uh, of his mates and there was about 40 french villagers uh, and about 40 well about, no, there's about 20 squaddies all getting hammered together uh, and nobody speaking each other's language. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was it was fantastic. Universal and, language of alcohol, though. Absolutely, and meat, <laughs> alcohol yeah. and meat. I think. Yeah. Uh, but the year before, this is an interesting, really nice story. Is um, when we found the the German remains under the tank track. Um, we didn't. We weren't expecting to find human remains because we don't go prospecting for them. If they turn up, we deal with them. You know, that's. And they turned up. We 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 found these bodies literally on Thursday afternoon when we were ready to pack up. We were going to go home on Saturday. And we, you know, we, we couldn't leave them in the ground. We had to deal with them. So because we had no security on sites, and in the past in other sites I've had, uh, where I've worked on, I've had um, people come onto sites after we'd been working and basically go up and down with a, a metal detector and just rip stuff out of the ground so we'd lost it forever. Yeah. You know, it probably ends up on eBay or in somebody's yes. collection. So we had we had the the issue that we had no security on site, but Richard basically said to the to the veterans, he said, you know, uh, is any uh, would anybody volunteer just to stay up tonight just to guard the site? And every one of them said they would. Wow. Like, you know, amazing. Yeah. And it's that almost unbroken bond between you know the 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 the, vet, the veterans and these these soldiers from a hundred years previously yes but then on top of that uh the local french villagers in bullocor uh they opened up the burger van so that the lads would have something to eat right they brought that up onto site and then they tipped up with about uh about 15 tents and sleeping bags 
And then they tipped up with about 15 crates of booze for these guys. Wow. And and, and this just completely out of nowhere. You know, uh, yeah. they just turned up with all this stuff uh, just to help out. So that's what I say, you know, from uh, a point of view from the, the private landowners, most of them are really, really interested in this stuff. They're really enthusiastic about having us around because it gives them something to talk about. You know, it makes a bit of interest for the for the village, for the history of it. And, you know, most of them know about these battles anyway yeah. uh, and are interested in it. And the, the farmer who owns the land, or tenants it at least, is a guy called Didier, who uh, he remembers when he was a kid, German soldiers sleeping in their barn, you know, in the Gosh. Second World War. They'd yeah. be billeted there. And he was showing us uh, in his barn. So, again, they've got this real unbroken connection with, you know, these these wars against Germany and the fact that, you know, the German soldiers were there in, in living memory. And yeah. he uh, and Didier, again, is incredibly enthusiastic about the First World War and about preserving the, the memory of these people and the, the soldiers. And, you know, he gave a speech in French, which none of us understood, about the soldiers at the end of the dig, you know, the, the German soldiers that we found, raised a toast to them. He brought out champagne and his barn is like most of the farmers in that area, absolutely stuffed full of munitions and bits of metal and yeah. all kinds of stuff that, you know, they're, they're finding when they're plowing their fields up. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they are private landowners, but most of them are more than happy to have you there doing something interesting because they're as interested in it as we are. And, and of course, it's, it's a long answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, that's what we want, Alex. We want long answers. The less I talk, the better. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and of course, it isn't just the Great War that was fought over a lot of this land, is it? You know, going down through history, um, that, that area and, and northern France and Belgium. And mm. I've been traipsed over, haven't they, backwards and forwards by uh, marauding armies pretty much. Oh, God, yeah, you could. Yeah, I mean, Britain has always has always gone to war over those areas. Yes. Uh, since Elizabethan times, really, hasn't it? So in, from our point of view, our, our, I mean, Britain's point of view in history, it's incredibly important that those places stay, you know, in neutral hands, really. Yes. We've we've always fought, you know, this is why Britain got involved in the First World War after Germany went through Belgium. Mm. You know, it wasn't so much about plucky brave Belgium. It was about retaining neutrality of the ports so that nobody could invade Britain. You know, it's exactly. national security, isn't it? And a bit always... of self-interest in there, wasn't there? <laughs> yes, <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I, I guess we'd better start talking about a bit of wargaming, hadn't we? <laughs> that, that's really... <laughs> and, Alex, Alex, you are um, my first bona fide uh, professional archaeologist stroke historian, so... Uh, that's, <laughs> oh, thanks. thanks for that's, that. No, that's been absolutely great hearing that. It's... Um, as uh, somebody who who doesn't who, who missed the opportunity or or didn't mm. take that right turn, I think, uh, mm. when it came to choosing A levels and degree courses, uh, <laughs> it's 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 something that I admire and you know I I, I appreciate well, a job is a job, isn't it? But you you say that, but I mean I I don't have an A level to my name. Oh really? <laughs> yeah, I left school without any. I I I messed around for a few years and then I did a night class in archaeology in GCSE archaeology. Right. I just ended up going to university through off the back of that really. Wow. Wow. Uh, when I was, I was one of the mature students, you know, right. yeah. It's a bit late for me, mate. I'm older than you. So. <laughs> <laughs> I plowed my own furrow through life. 
never too late. Never too well, late. No, perhaps not. Perhaps not. Um, so you mentioned earlier on that your your principal area and uh, interest in historical gaming is is 20th century, and I I got to become aware of your website through uh, your use of square bashing and playing out mm. uh, Battle of the Somme. So just tell us a bit about your your, your war gaming then in, in recent years and uh, playing World War One, World War Two uh, games and uh, square bashing interests me. I was I was part of the playtest team. Um, uh, okay. Uh, with square bashing, I'm good friends with Martin at Peter Pig. Mm. Uh, so I, I was really interested to see that you were using them for a historical game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, square bashing, I, I got into in its first edition uh, because I've been playing a lot of Second World War stuff. And I just, uh, my interest, when uh, my initial military history interest and war game interest was Second World War. Uh, and then as I got more into the First World War battlefield archaeology, my interest of the first world war started to overtake and you know i got more and more interested in that as a subject as well a historical subject so my wargaming also kind of moved slightly more towards that as well and i was always looking around for you know a a a good game of of first world war stuff and there didn't seem to be too many about but i saw the the original square bashing first edition i don't have you ever played it Did, did you do you know that one yes yeah i was um uh, I have played it. Yes, uh, it's it's quite a different game to the um, the new version, it's, isn't it? Yeah, it's massively different. Um, but it was nonetheless enjoyable at the time. You know, I yeah, still enjoyed playing yeah. it. Uh, thought it was a good game. So I basically collected all the figures for that, really, for the for initially for Square Bashing version one. So I've got a British and a and a German army. Um, I think I maxed out the points on both of them. So there's quite they're quite big. Yeah, but it was a time when I had quite a lot of money, so I was basically just spending it on 15 millimeter figures. Yeah. They were <laughs> a lot cheaper lot... back then as well. They certainly were, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I wish I could go back to those prices. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I've got um, so I've got this big collection of First World, but then the second edition of Square Bashing came out, and because I'd enjoyed the first edition so much, I you know jumped on board with the second edition. Uh, <laughs> but strangely enough, uh, the very first game that me and my mate played, we didn't like it. I just there was there was a few things in it that I just couldn't get my head around. Mm. And largely, I think what it was is that I'd been up drinking till about four o'clock the night before, <laughs> okay. and I had such a massive hangover that I couldn't think clear, think straight or anything. <laughs> okay. I was trying to work these rules out, and. Uh, in in our little group, I've got a couple of mates who do historical wargaming, and our little thing is that if you want to play a game, you buy everything for it. So you buy both sides, yeah. and you know everybody. Then everyone else turns up and they just play it with you. So it doesn't doesn't mean that one of you's bought an army and then you're waiting for somebody else to paint up an army to play against. So I bought everything. So my mate had no idea what these rules were because he'd not read them. He hasn't got a copy. However, so he was relying on me with my befuddled brain to try to work my way through these new rules that I could barely remember. Yeah. But that said, we played it again, and I realized the mistakes I was making, and I think it's an absolutely fantastic game. It's really, really good. Yeah. Uh, it's definitely one of, one of our group's favorites. We always really enjoy playing it, and I think it's got a real uh, period feel because – 
you know, it, with wargaming, I think you know the, one of the main one of the main hooks is that is that period feel, isn't it? It's the Agreed. idea, you know, when when you're playing something, you want to feel like you're playing how it would feel in that that particular period, and and square bashing really does it for the First World War, I think. Can we, can we really, say can we say play the period and not the rules? We yes, we certainly can. Yeah, we know that phrase, we, don't we? We certainly do know that phrase. Yes. And, and, and me and my mates, we definitely play the period, not the rules, because we yeah. can hardly remember the rules most of the time. You've seen <laughs> my after action reports. <laughs> You've seen my action after I can't, I can't even re- I can't remember when I've got the book in front of me. You know. <laughs> Don't let the rules get in the way of a good game. That's my exactly. motto. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we always uh, we text each other afterwards saying, "Oh, do you know at that point we should have done this." <laughs> well, <laughs> Sounds matter. so much like my experience. That. Does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of think, well, it's done. We had a fun. Yeah. Who cares? You know. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah we're definitely not rules lawyers. But um, but yeah, square bashing, it, it's what it did as well. It kind of turned us onto the bucket of dice games because you know it uses a lot of dice rolling like fives and sixes or whatever, doesn't it? Yes. It's not, yeah. uh, there's not a lot of modifiers on that. You're just basically adding dice to the pool. Yes. And uh, there's a lot of modern games. I think that was the first one we played that had that that mechanism in it. And then we all really it kind of you know scales fell away from our eyes and we we're all thinking why are we doing all these multiple sums adding up and taking away all these things when you could just add a dice in take some dice out simple yeah. you know and yeah so it, from that point of view and, and just as as I say as a game itself it's really good good fun always yeah. good uh, good outcomes and you know it, it rewards you when you when you do the right thing if you send one battalion in to attack a machine gun nest you're not going to do very well you know <laughs> you need your support you need as your... i find out fairly frequently whenever i play <laughs> i never learn yeah. <laughs> you're climbing over the bodies of your own men okay. yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah but yes it's, it's a really fun game and I'd, I'd definitely recommend it yes and one of the other things that we we tried out was uh, through the mud and blood by the two fat lordies mm-hmm. again first world war um but i think we were probably a little we just not really clicked with it but this was quite a few years ago before i'd really explored any of the other lordies games uh but i'm going to i'm going to revisit it and i'm even thinking of doing a uh, a solo aar on it at some point in the future as well for the for the channel as well for the for yeah. the video channel obviously yeah, I'd look forward to that. The First World War has often been thought of as a difficult period to game, hasn't it, traditionally? Um, because yeah, of, very much so. If you weren't during the early months of the, the conflict in 1914, then yeah. you couldn't do it because it's just a static game. But in actual fact, uh, modern, more modern rules approaches, I think, have come along to, uh, to sort of challenge that. Way of they really and, have, and, yeah. and you're right. Square bashing, whether you're playing the the standard game, whether you're playing the trench version of it, mm. uh, works works really well. And in fact, um, as I, I mentioned earlier, you um, adapted it for the Somme, didn't you? The first day of the Somme. Yes, yes, I did. Yeah, um, I just uh, because you know you can develop your own, uh, you can create your own scenarios within the book. Uh, by following it through, but I just decided to actually write my own scenarios for it, and and one was based on the Somme, so it was the the attack on uh, on some of the areas that I know pretty well, so bomb on Hamel, uh, Thierval, and uh, Serre, which is where the Sheffield 
city battalion attacked. So they're my local, relatively local uh, battalion, pals battalion. Mm. And uh, the the only area that was successful was the attack on Tierval, which was the 36th Irish, which I talked about earlier, uh, where they captured the German trenches, but then because of the the collapse of the, the units either side of them, they they were forced to retreat. But they were they uh, a bit of myth busting is that the 36th Irish ran at the German trenches rather than the 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 idea that they everybody walked into German machine gun fire. Oh, right. you know, so, yeah, they they actually crawled out of their trenches into no man's land about That's halfway right. across. Yeah, yeah, and waited to the the barrage to lift, and then actually ran at the German trenches. And because they got across so fast, they uh, they captured their objectives. Yeah, but as I say, they were unable to hold them from German counterattacks. Uh, so I wanted to replicate that really uh, in in square bashing form. So I set it up, and I think we played. I think we may have played it on something like the third of July, twenty sixteen. So it was probably a couple of days after the uh, the actual day itself. Yeah, um, the centenary. The centenary, yes. Yeah. And uh, the the British failed to get into the German trenches. <laughs> so <laughs> history played out uh, yeah. in that particular game. But then I did redid it recently as a solo AAR because um, square bashing works pretty well as a solo game as well. Agreed and uh, played it as a solo game, and the British swept right through and got every single objective. So it just shows you, you know, completely different uh, outcomes to the same game. You had some very good dice, the British did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they certainly did. They certainly did. <laughs> I, I've watched that. In fact, um, I, I've mentioned before that yeah, that was your original game was an inspiration for me to do the mm. exact same thing at uh, the Peter Pig War Games Weekender, which I think was the year after. And I just yeah. fixed, I, I, I stretched the table out a little bit because I was we've got two two players per side. Yeah. Um, who all, I all saw very, the photos. Yeah. 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 All very experienced in uh, in playing square bashing, and mm. uh, the 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 high tide point was uh, Beaumont Hamel. Um, mm. They managed to get in there, but then were kicked out because um, they couldn't consolidate. Uh, the the gains that they made uh, in Sare or right Hawthorne uh, Crater and then uh, Tietval. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you're you're right. I, I think as a spectacle uh, and as a rule set, it works pretty well. And in fact, it I, does. I'm, I'm moving on to try uh, the Great War Spearhead set, which I've spoke about on the podcast before. Uh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen those. I've seen those around a lot. Uh, and mainly at conventions like Joy yeah. of Six and things. Uh, I think somebody had a had a massive setup of um, the Somme, first day of the Somme, a couple of years ago. That's uh, right. It was I Robert Dunlop that, who I interviewed uh, uh, a few episodes ago. Yeah, it was fantastic. Right, there you go. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. And it was it was an amazing setup. Really nice. Uh, it was interesting from my point of view to to point to my mates of the areas that I dug. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can imagine. Put a trench in there. Put a trench in there. <laughs> well, I mean that covered uh, that covered from Serre down to I think it's virtually down to Montauban in the in the it south, was, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just incredible efforts. Mm. Yeah, incredible effort. Yeah, the game the game I'm hoping to do is, is that there's a scenario in the Great War. Uh, spearhead rulebook for the Tietval sector with the uh, 36th right. uh, mm. division uh, going forward. There's also uh, the Salford uh, pals were down in that sector as well, a bit further 
down, which I, I got a relative who, who survived uh, and mm. came home. But um, yeah, it's uh, I'm looking forward to that. I've got I've got most of the figures. Um, right. I'm still in I'm still in what I'm calling the research phase, which is lasting <laughs> for about 12 months of buying every book <laughs> I can find on the site. There's nothing wrong with that. No, <laughs> no, no. And I, I've, 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 I've visited there, but never really had the chance to spend an awful lot of time. I've done a lot uh, around the Eep Salient, a lot of walking mm. around there with uh, friends, but it's always been just sort of a morning or a, an afternoon with family as we're travelling to or from uh, yeah. location. So I really want to spend uh, some time out there. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things. I mean, the the uh, the Somme and 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 Ypres, they are such big areas that you know you can't you could see quite a lot of it in a in a long weekend. Yeah. But you can oh, there's so much you can keep. I've I've been going to the Somme for what 17 years, and you know there's still places I haven't visited. Yeah. I've never been to, you know, uh, some places I've, I've walked over plenty of times, but there's, you know, there's always something new that you can go and see that I've still not, not dropped in on yet. You know, yeah. it's just a way of any, everything, isn't it? Really spend, yeah. spend a lifetime there finding. New yeah. Stuff. Yeah. It's, it's something I, I, I intend to return to. I was going to go this year, but I don't think it's going to happen mm. uh, now, unfortunately. Um, okay. So uh, that, that's your first world war. Um, I know that you've done quite a bit of second world war gaming on your um, blog and on, on YouTube mm. as well with rapid fire and chain of command. So what, what sort right. of um, collections have you got there? Uh, largely Eastern front. Uh, that's the, that's the core of my original uh, figures was, was always, I was always more drawn to the Eastern front stuff. So Soviets and Germans largely. Um, then, uh, I've also got little patches of bits and pieces. I've got some Americans, which I just recently painted. Uh, it's only a handful enough for probably a small game of chain of command. Um, but I've also got some stuff for Malaya as well, because I never really knew much about the Malayan campaign and the, the fall of Singapore. Uh, because you know it's it's one of those real forgotten theatres, yes. and I think a lot of people really forget about it. And you know Singapore was one of the major uh, defeats of the British army and of the British uh, the country of Britain at the time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not only that, we lost the battleships as well. You know, to the Japanese uh, aircraft, and it was George, wasn't it? it was George? I should have made a, made, a, made a video about it. I should know. Uh, <laughs> I've watched it, and I can't remember. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, the um, but I went uh, I went out to Singapore um, about twelve years ago, and the reason I went out there is because I was working for a bomb disposal company, and we were clearing the 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 old British airbase of Selatar. I was just there surveying because as an archaeologist, I knew how to survey. Uh, so I was just doing that because I wasn't doing the bomb disposal. But um, I was working out there and I was there for almost a year, I think. And what I did in my days off uh, on my weekends was basically just go and look at some of the old museums. And then I started learning more about the, the Malayan campaign and the fall of Singapore. So then I started to visit some of the battlefields uh, on Singapore Island itself uh, and I just got a real interest in it. And I just thought, you know, this is something that I'd, I knew very little about. I knew it had happened, but, you know, the actual 
a story of it and the history of it. I had, I had no idea. Yeah. So I just started looking into it, you know, and, and, and then from that, you know, we're, we're, we're war gamers. You're a war gamer. You know, we, we, we read something and we think, how would this play on the table? Always. You know what I mean? Everything, anything, really. You could Films, turn into books. A war game. Exactly. <laughs> and this is what happened, literally yeah. what happened. So I just started collecting uh, some British and Japanese figures, and they were mainly for rapid fire. Yeah. And I managed to source these uh, these books that Michael A. Sace had written. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's you know them. Familiar they're, to me. Yeah, they're these little yellow A5 uh, stapled together booklets. He's a big six mil war gamer, actually. Uh, yeah. A lot of articles in the magazines over the years. Yes, I've, I've seen his name come up on Facebook groups. Uh, and I've actually talked to him now to ask him if he's got any more of these these little uh, these Malayan campaign ones, but I don't think he does, unfortunately. Uh, but I managed to get I think three of them, and they were all for rapid fire. They basically laid out the the Malayan campaign in rapid fire. So me and my friends we started playing it, working our way through, you know the the, the games. And every time the Japanese steamrolled the British or the Indians. Every time, <laughs> until <laughs> until recently, when we played a game of um, uh, an Australian uh, ambush, and that was the first time that the the Allied forces actually won the game. So we were able to to reverse it a little bit at least. Yes, that's, got a bit of honour back. That's it. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was always always rapid fire. But what what we've done is um, I've now converted over to I am being shot one. And chain of command in rather pretty recent years, probably in the last two years, in fact, and uh, really enjoying those games. And you know, rapid fire was great, but I think it was kind of great for its time. Mm. It's it's very you know it's an I go you go game. It's very you can tell where it's come from. It's come from the classic wargaming stables of Don Featherstone and and, and those kind of people. Yeah, so I, I played a lot of it back when it first mm. came out. I think it was in the mid nineties, wasn't it? Ultimately? Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I played it when I used to go to the York War Games group when I was a York student um, back in in the late nineties. That's yeah. when I was first introduced to it. And we've we've played it to death, you know, me and my mates, and we do we like it. But nowadays, like I say, I look at the the Lardy stuff, and for me at least. You know, there'll be other people that disagree, but for me, I think their stuff. I like the friction that are in the Lardy's games. Yeah. You know, the 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 either the 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 pulling of the card in in I am being shot more more than rolling of the dice in in Chain of Command. I like that. Yeah. You know, the idea you don't know what's going to happen next, so you can't really make. You can have an overall strategy, but you can't make a specific plan. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. If the tea break card comes up, then yeah, uh, exactly. Your, your plans can be. Uh frustrated somewhat exactly you've really got to think on your feet it's not like with rapid fire you you, you kind of know what you want to do in the next turn yeah and you can pretty much do it yeah everything's going to activate isn't it that mm. you, you want to activate exactly. And, exactly i think um rich and nick have uh spoke about the friction element that they've deliberately put into both of those rule sets just mm. to create that uh, uncertainty which is great isn't it yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, I I can understand why why people wouldn't get on board with it or even you know not like it so much. And it yeah. took me a little while just to get my head around it. I've got to admit, but the more I play it, and in particular Chain of Command, the more I play that, the I just see the nuances in it that 
you know, weren't apparent when I first read the rules. Yes. You know, it's one of those things. I think you kind of have to have somebody show you how to play it and then play it a good few times. And you, it suddenly sinks in. You go, yeah, actually, this is really good. It's really inventive, really interesting set of rules and mechanisms here. And, and that's where um, the online community with the likes of YouTube come in great, don't they? Because mm. you, you might not grasp a concept within a rule set or uh, not be quite sure how, how something works. And then mm. somebody's done a, a battle report on it and it becomes clear, which is obviously where uh, a lot of your videos are coming in as well. Yeah, well, I've done a, I've done a couple of how to play videos. I've done the, the one on I am being shot on. Uh, and I'm just at the moment, I'm just releasing the uh, chain of command how to play videos. Uh, both of them I think are three or four parts each only about 10 minutes and I'm just I'm just going through the rules really just showing people how how they work because like you say sometimes you know reading something and playing it are two different things sometimes very much so yes I I far more prefer to be playing the game hopefully with the person who wrote the rules which is all possible (laughs) in these cases uh, or somebody who knows the rules very well than mm. sitting down and, and reading them because you're, you're right they, they can be worlds apart aren't they the experience yeah even just sometimes just the way things are written how it can yeah. be taken i mean you know again me and my friends uh we we play the period not the rules we're not rules lawyers but yeah. you know sometimes there can be a discussion as to what something is supposed to mean but you know once you get it and i think again with the lardy stuff their stuff is so well written as well that it is pretty clear anyway but yes. it's also it's easier when you've got that person just walking you through it almost. And they, you know, from a video point of view, they've been very big hits. They have got, you know, quite a lot of views uh, from people. And, and I've got quite I've had quite a lot of positive feedback, especially for the I ain't been shot mom stuff. You know, people have been saying, oh, I really, really needed this. Yeah. You know, so it's quite nice to hear that. They're, I mean, they, they are. I was speaking to Rich about this uh, yesterday that. Um, mm. the, the two fat lardy stables of ru- stable of rules have really captured the market haven't they um, yeah i know that you played um an online game of ducks britannia Arm, i think was it last mm. weekend oh, it was yeah 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 and that you immediately went out and got the rules um, <laughs> i was i was trying to find them while we were playing oh really <laughs> I was ordering them on my phone. <laughs> well, I, 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 on speaking to Rich last night, I, I, I finished the interview and then uh, went and bought Infamy Infamy, and I've never played Ancients in my life. <laughs> I'm not sure yeah, what I'm, came over me. I'm trying to stop myself from buying it. Right. <laughs> you I know it'll happen. I know it will, yeah, probably by the end of this week. I got paid today, so it's probably ah. going to happen. <laughs> yes, definitely. definitely. But, but what I like about them as well is, is that – the, the, the core mechanisms for the fighting and the, the actual activations and stuff are very similar within them, yeah. although there's differences in, within the, in each of the rules. So once you know one set pretty well, you can quite easily pick up another set of rules, you know, and play it very well. But it feels like a completely different set of rules. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I found that with, with Ducks just playing it. You know, I knew how we were playing it because I'd seen those mechanisms in other games, but it still felt as though it was, you know, saxons versus britons rather than japanese versus indians in 1942 you know yes it felt it felt right uh, for that period and so they, having having been involved in um a lot of the playtesting for peter pig rules over over the years mm. i get the similar similar thing there's there's often common themes that will run 
uh, through yeah. those set of rules that make it comfortable to move into that new period. Uh, mm. But you just then need to learn the, the extra chrome that gives you that period flavour that you were talking about earlier. That's it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I don't know how they do it. Some some kind of magic, but you know it works. <laughs> so yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. It as well, I can say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I said to um, Rich last night. I think one of the partisan shows last year. I think just about every other table was a, a two fat lardies game, which um, mm. I'd never seen before, and that just shows you how much of the market they, they they've captured and yeah, they clearly do something very right, aren't they? Yeah, definitely, definitely, and they are very supportive as well within within that community yeah. you know they uh, the amount of supplements that they have for all of their rules are all well supported yeah. and it and it doesn't feel as though anything is left behind or forgotten and you you know they're they're always there to, to ask questions of yeah and the, and the community is is very supportive as well in that yeah the, the, either the lardy magazine or the lardy annual there's always mm. You know, there's the still scenarios being created for Kiss Me Hardy, which is one of the old <laughs> sets of rules. Yeah, or, yeah. Um, you know, they're, they're always updating it, or there's always a a variant of Chain of Command for a different period or, or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and their social media presence uh, and, and presence on forums as well, I think, uh, uh, really helps to push the, the message along of what they're trying to achieve. Oh, yeah, definitely. Very much so. Uh, and the the lard days that they have, I mean, I went to the one, the steel lard last year up in Sheffield, and that was, I think that was probably my real, first real introduction to the uh, the lardies rules as they're played on the table. Yeah. Because I'd had chain of command for a little while, but again, I was still trying to just figure it out as a game. But yeah. then I played. Uh, Charlie was running a a a Second World War game, and I I was playing that and. And then it just suddenly clicked, you know, because there was somebody there to show me how how these things worked. And you know, you suddenly go, oh yeah, that's now I know, now I can, and now I can work it. You know, I've I've been led through it. And that, and again, Rich was there, you know, uh, as part of that. He'd just come all the way up to Sheffield for the night uh, to partake in that. And and he's doing that kind of stuff, you know, going round round the country doing those things, those lad days. Obviously, this year has been a little different for everybody, but. Yeah. That's how the virtual lad took off, you know. Yeah, yeah, no, it's great. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about then, Alex, was um, the, and this is relevant with it being a six-mill podcast, your rather large Napoleonic <laughs> collection that you've built up over the last, I think it's four years, is it? Yes, it is four years. <laughs> it's like <laughs> a sigh say of resignation. It is, it's depressing to think. <laughs> It's like, oh my God, if I ever see another Napoleonic figure again. You know, I've still got the Prussians to do, so I can't oh. think like that. <laughs> no, no, push on, push on. It's my life. <laughs> so so yes. what, what first um, sent you down that route? Because well, Napoleonics can be a rabbit hole, can't you, from, oh, can't God, it, from yeah. which you can never emerge. Absolutely. I mean, well, well my first, I mentioned, you know, my, my, my start in wargaming really came around with the, the Esky figures. Yes. The 172nd Napoleonic stuff, because I was always interested in that as a kid. I was always interested in Waterloo, probably from the film, I would have, I would have thought. I probably watched the film and got into it through that. And um, so I've always had this interest in Napoleonics, and in particular the Waterloo campaign, which I know it, sometimes it seems like, you know, that's the main thing that a lot of war gamers do when it comes to Napoleonics, I would have thought. Yeah. 
you know, it's the big thing, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. But I've just always had an interest in it. Well, it's one of the most well-known battles in history, isn't it? So Easily, it's, easily. It's especially, yeah, I mean, in, in Britain, at least, it definitely is, yeah. I mean, uh, Because Britain uh, won the Battle of Waterloo, didn't they? They did. <laughs> it was purely Britain. <laughs> no, yeah, well, n- nobody else was involved. Or the Dutch or the, the Prussians no. or <laughs> the Germans. Or <laughs> yeah. Forget about <laughs> yeah, but we were bankrolling them, so you know. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we yeah. can claim we can claim some part of it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, it's one of the most, like you say, one of the famous battles in in the world, really. Yeah. And everyone's heard of it, even if they don't know anything about it. And but I've just always been interested in it as a battle. And when I was growing up as a teenager, my mates wouldn't play historical stuff. They would pl- only play 40k or Warhammer fantasy battles. So I, I had to play that stuff. Instead of my Napoleonics, you know, my the weirdo in the corner with his his red coats. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I, so I've always had this interest simmering away at uh, at Napoleonics, but no, I've always had the fear of painting the uniforms, and you know, painting the large scale stuff, uh, anything from 15 mil above. I know that I'd be so OCD about getting it right that it'd take forever just to paint even one figure. You know, I wouldn't, I'd, and I'd know, even if nobody else knew, you know, I'd know that the buttons are the wrong colour or whatever. But you, can't, you can't see me nodding, but I am nodding vigorously. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. So, you know, whenever I've gone to a wargaming show, I've absolutely drooled all over the, the Napoleonic stuff. You know, I'm yeah. sorry for people when I've got my spittle all over their <laughs> figures, but I, I uh, you know, and I've just loved the, the spectacle of it. And the you know the the look of it, everything about it, and I've and I've always said to myself, if I'm doing Napoleonics, I'd do big battles. Yeah. Then Sam Blue, uh, Sam Mustafa puts out Blucher, yeah. and that turned my head. <laughs> I'd I'd played Shako, yeah, I'd played Shako before years ago, but again because of the the size of it, um, I'd never really got into it. I was I played it at a club in York, but then um, I never really took it up myself. But I always enjoyed playing it on the club nights. But then, as I say, Blucher came out. And I'd heard good things about Sam Mustafa's stuff anyway. I'd not actually read any of his rules at that time. But I just took a punt and I saw it in our local wargaming shop in here in Sheffield. And uh, just picked it up. I thought, this is actually pretty good. And they were also selling the, the card set for the 100 Days campaign. So I picked that up as well the week after because nobody was buying these things. You know, they only yeah. had one set of each. So I went back in and got the card set. And and then I thought to myself, uh, me and my mate were talking about it, and I thought I could do this in 15 mil. That would be relatively cheap and easy. So I bought some 15 mil Napoleonic figures, and I looked at them, and I thought, again, the amount of work I'm going to have to put in just to paint one of these it's just not going to be worth it. Yes. And I was talking to my mate and he said, why don't you try six mil? And I thought, yeah, okay. I'll, and, you know, I've not done six mil gaming for a long time. I used to have some micro tanks. The first war gaming stuff was six mil. And then I had some mic- more Soviet and German micro tanks, which I sold a few years ago. Uh, but I'd not really done any more six mil stuff. So I just, I bought some uh, British infantry from Bacchus. Uh, and, and when they turned up, I was really astounded at how nice they were because the stuff I'd had before was all the, the old Heroics and Ross figures. 
uh, and I mean the old ones, you know, I don't know what they're like now, but at the time there wasn't a great deal of detail on them. No. So when the Bacchus ones turned up, they, they really blew me away as to how detailed and how nice these figures were. And that again turned me head. So I painted a few of them. And, uh, I think I'd found a blog on online. I can't remember whose it was, but they'd basically given you a, an instruction as to how to paint six mil figures uh, by undercutting them black and then just doing uh, the lines and, and little dibs and dabs of paints here and there on them. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I follow Pear from uh, Roller One on Twitter uh, and his his uh, his six mil stuff is incredible. I mean, his 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 painting is better than than my my bigger stuff. You know, every time he puts a picture up, I want to smash my things up with a hammer because <laughs> his are so nice. You know, they are very nice. Yes. And 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 he was painting what was it tattoos on on Celtic warriors the other day? He was, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. I'm literally me. just pour, pouring my stuff in the bin. It's like, what's the <laughs> point? What is the point anymore? Damn but, you, pair. Yeah. <laughs> we love you it's, though. We love you. We do. We do. We do. Definitely a massive inspiration. Yes. Huge. But, uh, I mean, he does a lot more to his figures than I do. He, you know, he, he uh, ink washes them and then does highlights and things. I don't really do that. Yeah. Because I, I go for the spectacle at a long range, you know, if, if somebody's bending in looking at whether the figure's got painted eyeballs or not, I think I think I'm doing it wrong, you know. Well, I'll put them in the eyeball if they did that. To <laughs> yeah. Be yeah, absolutely. Um, but so I thought to myself, well, what I could do is I could replicate the hundred days cards that I've got uh, with the six mil figures. Yeah. So I sat down and worked it out a bit, and I, th- and I, th- I thought this is only going to take a couple of months. Surely, you know. These are relatively quick to paint. Yeah, yeah. Here we are, two house moves later, <laughs> years down the line, and I've just completed the British. <laughs> and, and, and the Prussians aren't done yet, yeah. No, I haven't even bought them yet. Oh. <laughs> I know exactly how much they'll cost because I've got a list broken ah, down. Okay. I, I know what I know exactly what I need, and I know how much they'll cost, including the bases and including Good. everything that I'll need to, for them. So I'm just saving up for them at the moment. And also, unfortunately, backers are, are on and offline, aren't they? Because they're yes. getting so many orders. Yeah. So I, I don't have to sneak in under their radar to, to get something uh, get something moulded from them, uh, cast from them. Well, I you say. do live in the, in the same city, so... Yeah, well, I'm in Rotherham. sneak up there. Oh, you're in uh, Rotherham, okay. It's, okay. it's about seven miles away. So, yeah, we, we're, we're pretty close, though. You know, yeah. they, are, they are a stone's throw away. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so... So basically, I just got into it and I thought, you know, I, if I'm gonna, I want to do Napoleonic, I really like Blucher. It works as a great game because it works as a, uh, it, again, it, it's that period feel. It feels like a big Napoleonic game wants to. You know, if it's not a skirmish. You, you're moving brigades around, you know, yes. and, that you, you, so it, and it does away with all that finesse and it does away with all the minutiae of, of, of soldiers standing in particular formations. Yeah. You, you're... You're the big commander. You're not. You're not. You're not down the front making sure men are turning into square and things. You know, you're you're just pushing them around on a board, really. Yeah. And they're doing what they're supposed to be doing at that point. You know, and I like that kind yeah. of projection from Blucher, which, which is what I like about the the other Sam Mustafa game of Rommel, because that's again it's a very high level second war. Yes. And, you pl- have you played that one as well? Have you? Yeah, yeah. I've got I've got a copy of Rommel. Oh, great. I played okay. it on a square bashing board because I've got a. Oh, yeah. I see it fits with the six six inch six squares. Inch squares, yeah. So, 
So it was really uh, Blucher that, that pushed me over the edge when it came to Napoleonics, and it was Blucher was the, the the rules I've been looking for, I guess. And again, they're 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 simple, but they they're a great game. Yeah. You know they they're not they're not simple without by being oversimplified, mm. but they, they it feels like a really good big game, a big, big Napoleonic battle. So yeah, that that was the, the the project was basically to try to get the the units together for uh, for the hundred days campaign, including all the stuff that's even you know wasn't anywhere near the battlefields at the time. Yeah. Uh, even got those units involved because uh, I want to be able to play its uh, fictional games as well as playing you know the the big the big battles of that campaign. Yeah. So as I say, at the moment I can only play half of them because I haven't got the Prussians yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so no Ligne or Wavre. Yet. Not yet, not no. yet. But it's, it will happen, and, it, and it's going to be my next big project. As I say, as soon as I can raise the raise the uh, the war chest to to pay for it, I'm uh, it will be it will be paid for. I look I look forward to that. Mm. So Just don't the... tell my wife how much it's going to cost. That's all. Well, no, don't. <laughs> <laughs> pennies, yes, mealy yes. pennies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, Bluka is, as you've said, it's it's that grand tactical scale, isn't it? Where mm-hmm. you are the the corps commander or the army commander. Um, yeah. Not not really worried about your, what battalion and uh, brigades are doing individually yeah. with the formations. Sort mm. of in that volume bane, it's vein isn't it i don't know if you've ever seen volume bane it no i don't know that one yeah it's 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 uh, gosh it's it's quite an old set of rules but um mm. it was the first time i'd seen the concept where you've got a three inch square and it didn't really matter how many figures you've got on there but it's the same concept that it's a you're an army or corps commander um right uh, moving moving troops around and what what the individual battalions are doing is is not of consequence to you you just need yeah. to get the right troops in the right place and that's what blucher mm. is isn't it by the looks yeah of it. definitely um so w- the bases are quite interesting aren't they um i don't know where you've sourced them from <laughs> i guess they're a so bit of an odd shape aren't they those. I guess so many questions <laughs> every time I put pictures up of these things. Where are those bases from? What do those things mean at the front? Yeah, yeah they actually come from Sally Forth. They do uh, blue shirt for spe- specific uh, bases. And yeah. they're basically three and a half inches by two inch, which I think is the standard playing card size, which is the same size as the cards in the 100 Days set. Yeah. And they have the little notches on them. The notches at the front show the firing arc for the for the unit and then you also have the little notch at the front which is just basically the center of the the base which the the movement is all pivoted around right. uh, because you you basically either you do a, an easy move which is you move double normal speed uh, ba- double base width because everything's done on base widths uh, so there's no specific ground uh size so you could actually play it on any size depending on how much you want to set your base width i set mine at three inch because it makes it easier, you know, three, six, nine is is pretty similar to most wargaming rules. Yeah. Um. So, and then you basically pivot and you can move uh, either one base width if it's a difficult move or two base widths if it's a simple move. So it's for us, it's it's three inches or six inches. And yeah, the the bases are are specific for it, and every one of the brigades that are on those bases i've researched them and i've found the uniforms through them through i don't know if you know the centures uh, 100 days in french uh, 
web page. I, I didn't, but I've, I followed it from your website. Um, right. Now I have it in my bookmarks because it will come very useful. <laughs> it is incredibly useful. Uh, I mean, I don't know how uh, perfectly accurate it is. I've seen some people mention, you know, some bits are off, but it works perfectly for me. Yeah. And I went through every single one of the British and uh, the, the Allied and the French units and uh, basically sourced the, the colours from there, really, for each of those each of those individual brigades uh, of the regiments and painted them in their uh, facings, gave them the flags that they were they would have had for that campaign, that kind of thing. So, you know, these are the things that my friends, when we're playing Blue Shit, don't even men- don't even notice. But if I'd not done it, I would know. And that you would, would be know. that would be enough, you know, yes. for me. <laughs> yeah. to, to be upset enough not to play it. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't appreciate the work that you've done. They into, don't. Do they? they don't. <laughs> um, so when you're representing a, a unit on on those three and a half inch by two and a bit bases, how many figures? Uh, how many foot? How many cavalry are you putting on there? Uh, well, it all depends on the actual uh, historical unit. So. Each one is meant to be a brigade uh, in the rules. Yeah. And each brigade is made up on generally of uh, four battalions. So I've done the four different battalions, or however many there is, sometimes three, sometimes five, sometimes more or less, and uh, done 16 figures per battalion. And then there's usually four skirmishers out front if the unit has skirmishers, because what I've tried to do is try to make them as much as an aid memoir when we're playing as possible so you don't have to refer to the base the label that tells you what the traits are yeah. because some units have skirmishes some units are under strength some units are over strength so i've made that quite clear with the amount of units on so on general <laughs> sorry i'm going off at a tangent um mm-hmm. in general your average base of four battalions and skirmishes would under commander would be 69 figures uh for the cavalry i've done i think it's six figures per per squadron so there's usually three or four on a on a cavalry base so right. how many is that 18 figures yeah. or so again sometimes you know it goes up to 24 depending on the on the on the particular unit uh but i think it totals i put the totals on the on the videos that i made because I did actually go through and count up every single one of them. Wow. Uh, and I think, yeah, I think the and the French is something like about three and a half thousand. I think the British are about three thousand figures. Brief. So, so far, so, yeah, it's about six thousand in there. And then there's probably about a similar amount for the Prussians. So by the end of it, there should be about 10,000 figures. No wonder it took <laughs> you four years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Artillery is abstracted slightly, isn't it, I think? Uh, yes, you have artillery is done in in either battery or attached artillery. So you have a a battery unit which will fire. I basically put them on a base, and I'll usually put six guns on that just to show it as a battery. And as they fire, their effectiveness reduces. So they'll generally start off like with a firepower of say five, yeah. and then as as every time they fire, you take one off. Uh, and until they reach zero when they start to withdraw off the field you can though when you're setting up your game you can break those down into three individual attached artillery units and then they are added to the particular brigades and they then what basically what that does that just gives them a plus one uh, dice 
when they're firing. Right. So it's, so it's factored it, it, into the brigade's firing. Absolutely, yeah. And all you do is just mark that they've got a an attached artillery piece. What I do is I've got little um, 15 mil square MDF bases, which I've mounted one single artillery piece on with two two uh, crew, and then I just they just fit on the back of the base. So oh, again, okay. you can see straight away which one's got the attached artillery. It's quite a simple little method. Yes. Worked pretty well, I thought. Yeah. And just looks looks quite nice as well. Yeah, and I'd, and encourage anybody who hasn't. I'm sure most people listening to this will be aware of your blog, but um, uh, just give us the address of that, Alex. Uh, well, it is all one word: stormofsteelwargaming.com. And the YouTube channel is Storm of Steel Wargaming. If you search for that on YouTube, you'll find it. I'd encourage anybody to go because I'm, I'm, is it the first picture on the on the main page? You've got a picture of the French, is it? The Army du Nord? Yes, I think it is. I can't remember. Which, it's one or the which, other, but there's... It looks blinking impressive. <laughs> it, it looks like an army, doesn't it? Yeah, it took me a while to set it up just for those photographs. Uh, and I did do a video of both of them, both of the armies as well, which are on, on, the, on the channel. Uh, so I basically uh, filmed them from a long shot and then took, they went down close up to show different individual uh, brigades and the corps and things. So that's uh, a little bit more detail on those. And that, I mean, they've had quite a lot of views, actually. They, yeah, they are people yeah. who really like those. Yeah, they deserve lots of views. Peter Berry, who's been, who's been on a couple of times from Bacchus, um, he would talk about the larger scales, which looks like a couple of blokes taking a flag for a walk. Uh, <laughs> if you're playing 25 mil Napoleon, it's, we have these 12 figure, 12 figure yeah. units. And well, this, that case in point, yeah, the, looking at those units, that looks like an army. You know, that, mm. and that is, that is the real strength of six mil. I, I'm not a solely six mil gamer. You know, I've, I play a yeah. lot of 15 mil uh, and I've got some 28 mil and I play some fantasy and science fiction. Um, yeah. But uh, this this blog is about promoting the, the six mil cause. Mm. And, and if anybody, anybody wants to go and just have a little sniff of the screen when they see that <laughs> uh, uh, those two armies laid out, I think uh, it's quite intoxicating. Well, thanks for that. It's, uh, it's nice to hear. I, uh, yeah, the thing with six mil is, I mean, I'd, looking back, if if I was to do square bashing now, I'd probably actually do that in six mil. Yeah. Because I think that would work really well. Uh, I mean, it works well in fifteen mil, but I think you know, equally, it would it would look because that's battalion level as well, isn't it? Each, yes. You know, each unit, your smallest unit, is a battalion, and that would look great in in six mil, I think. But I don't have the time, inclination, or money to do that right now. <laughs> no, that that route lies madness. <laughs> yeah, indeed, indeed. Maybe when the Prussians are done, we'll see. Yes, yeah, get the Prussians done first. <laughs> so um, you've uh, you've played these games out solo, haven't you? On the uh, for and and recorded them on on video. Have they, have they been received on the YouTube? Yeah, they they have really taken off, um, and I think. I don't know if it's because people have got more time at the moment <laughs> and they're more bored, so they'll watch any, any old thing. I wouldn't say or, bored, but, you know, <laughs> lockdown may have something to do with it. Yeah, yeah true. But um, I, 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 did, I did that introduction to solo wargaming, which really took off. And I was quite surprised because when I was a kid, I used to play a lot of solo wargames just um, because, you know, just to play a game, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, 
so I was always kind of, you know, it's, it's always always at the back of my mind to play them. And I'm not a solo war gamer, uh, and I, I've generally played solo. I generally play war games with my mates because it's a social thing. Yes. You know, I like hanging out with them, and we like talking rubbish and and playing a game, you know, as part of that. Yeah. Uh, so I've not always played a lot of social uh, solo games for a long time since I was a kid. But I was just thinking about it during lockdown, and I thought, you know, I, I did this video on on solo wargaming, and I was thinking to myself, well, you know, if I'm talking about it, why don't I just show people how it's done as well, or at least how I do it, you know, some of these ideas. Because when I put the first video up, just talking, literally, you know, talking through some of the ideas of solo wargaming, a lot of people were posting going, I'd never really thought about it that way. And, you know, to me, that seemed strange, because to me, it was just like, well, it's just a way of playing games. I thought everybody did it, you know, when they were kids, but obviously not, you know. Yes. And uh, you know, you get you always get the same the same uh same kind of comments, things like, you know, oh uh, I, I play solo but you know, I always lose. So, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you're kind of missing the point there, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. yeah it's, it's a joke, but you know <laughs> uh you know it's about the the solo game is more about the narrative of the game, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Rather than which side actually wins, you know, and I like that side of it. You're telling a little story through your little men, basically. Yeah, and and with the I go I go you go uh, type games, or whether it's a card mechanic like in the Lord is, then it's mm. really just moving across the other side of the table, isn't it, and seeing what's in front of yeah. you. Yeah, uh, exactly. And taking it from there. And doing the best you can for that side at that particular time. Yeah. I mean, uh, the the Waterloo solo game I played. Um, with the six mil figures because i thought you know I've, I've painted them all now i want to do something with them mm. so i thought well right i'll just play waterloo you know set it up set them all in their approximate positions historically so they were all set up and you know i've always i've always had a bit of a, uh, uh an interest in the in the british uh, the Allies side more than the the french and i think i think somebody actually commented and said that that kind of came through they okay. said that I was I was rooting for the for the Allies all the way through, even though the French. Well, I don't know if this is a spoiler. The French won. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and maybe in my commentary on the video, I was, I was probably sounding disappointed as the as the French guard were smashing through uh, La Haye Saints or something, you know. But <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. So you can't it's you a... can't help obviously want want one side, but it shows that I was playing the game fairly because the French won, you know. Yeah. I think that comes across in your in your in your in your uh, narrative when you, you're telling the game and you, you talked about it, it's, it's about playing the narrative and not, mm. you're not playing to win or lose. Clearly you, you're playing no. against yourself, aren't you? You want to tell that story and um, exactly. I think it's only natural that you'd, you'd want the, <laughs> the good guys to win. <laughs> Sorry if there's any French <laughs> listeners out there. <laughs> yeah, we're all friends now. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I know what you mean. It's like, you know, you, you, you generally root for one side or another. I mean, I played the... Uh, the chain of command game which was the uh battle of kuantan solo where where it had there was a historical uh breakouts by the the allied forces there the indians and the british uh got out of the japanese uh who were surrounding them and and you know i was i was trying to get them out you know, again, spoilers. If you haven't seen it, uh, they don't. <laughs> but uh, you know, I was I was willing that side on uh, in that game because that was the narrative, you know, and it was creating its own narrative, which was different to the historical outcome. Yes. And 
I've enjoyed playing them, really. I just enjoyed getting back into solo gaming again. I've enjoyed, you know, setting up and, and, and recording these things and then editing them together as well. I mean, that always takes a, a hell of a long time, a lot longer than you even playing them. Yeah, uh, I, can, I can imagine. I mean, the podcast, I was talking to Richie uh, Clark again and he, he's recording mm. the Infamy videos and yeah. the, the amount of hours of editing that he puts into those to, to get them presentable. It's huge, yeah. and I'm sure you're the same because it's it's clearly edited uh, to speed up, you know, as you yeah. move around the table. And I know how long it takes me to edit these podcasts, but I, I suspect you're spending a hell of a lot longer than I am uh, because it, you've got that visual medium. Yeah, it's, it's probably to be honest with you, it's probably about the same amount of time, uh, just because you've still got to cut it down to something that's that's workable and usable and yes. and sounds good when it's out there. Yeah, and doesn't sound like or or look like it's edited. Yes. too much. You know, that's the thing, isn't it? And I think yeah. with podcasts, it's probably even harder because you're you're concentrating on that one thing, aren't you? The, which is the voice. Yes. So you've got to get it right. I mean, if you you know if you mess up the editing, it sounds so off. Yes, Whereas at least right. with a video, I can just put a dissolve in. So it's like, you know, it's like a new scene. Here we are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, I mean, yeah. your your videos come across really well edited, I have to say. Oh, thank and, you very much. Um, you know, I'd encourage anybody to go and, and take a look at them. And particularly from my perspective, it's, it's encouraged me into uh, looking at Waterloo or the, the 100 Days campaign because mm. Cat- Catrabrow would be the natural starting point because there's yeah. uh, fewer figures there, which is, is what <laughs> I'll probably start with. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd encourage anybody to go and, and take a look at those. Um, so how, how long would you say it took you to film that game and then edit it and put it out? Waterloo? Yeah. Uh, the filming, the well, the, the filming and the, and the playing took the full day. So I started... I started relatively early. I think I started about 10-ish. I set it up the day before. I, made, I thought the, a couple of days before, but we were set up in my loft for a while because um, it took me a little while to sort out where all the different units were and things. Yeah. And um, then I, I started on Saturday, and I think I must have started about 10 o'clock-ish. And I was, I'd finished it probably maybe 6 in the evening. And... You know, I was having breaks and stuff, like I had lunch yeah. and things like that, and then a few bits and pieces. But the it was a lot of it was like setting up the the camera and stuff as well, and you know, making sure that the shots were right and that kind of stuff. Uh, so the actual gaming of it was probably about half of that time, with the other stuff, you know, going on around it, the peripheral stuff. Then the editing of it, well. <clears throat> That one was relatively quick, and I say relatively <laughs> in the broadest possible sense, because because now I've been doing this for a while, I've I kind of know how to film something so I can edit it easier, if you know what I mean. Yes. So I'll film I'll film a, a sequence, but then I'll start talking maybe like five seconds into the filming starting. So right. I start so I'll I'll know that I've got a lead in time of, of five seconds. Yeah. And then leave it a few seconds afterwards, so I'm not cutting immediately after I've finished talking. So I've got a bit of, bit of leeway. And then with the program that I've got uh, that I use for editing, I can see where the the sound signatures are, so I can kind of cut it straight down right. to where I start talking and when I finish talking on that particular sequence. Yeah. Uh, obviously, there's sometimes where I might be looking at the rules, 
and those bits I edit out and you I can still tell them because there's silence on the uh, on the sound bar. Right. I'm talking Just pages and all flicking. Of <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's literally it. Yeah, that's literally it. Yeah. And uh, so I'll cut those out. And so I I probably worked on it a good few hours, but over over the week. So I did it in the evenings and things, and uh, you know just probably just did about an hour or two a night, and I would edit probably probably I don't know maybe about half an hour or so in that time. Yeah. It really depends on how complex it is, how many how many shots I was taking, and what was happening on the field and stuff and what I wanted to say, you know, generally what you see is, is what has happened on the board. Yes. I try not to cut, cut out too much, but also I, I don't want somebody sitting there while I'm looking through rules, you know, trying to find something obscure on page 96 or something, you know? Yeah. So I cut all that, that, that stuff out. Is it one camera that you're using? Yes, I really should get a couple. <laughs> I should buy another one at least. Um, yeah, I just I I, I bought one uh, just from Curry's, I think it was, but it was about around about hundred pounds. It's yeah. a little, uh, it's a proper you know camcorder uh, right. camera. Uh, I don't use the the phone or anything. I just I tried that when I first started off, and it just you know the the, the quality was just so poor. Yes. Uh, so I just I, I, I ponied up the money and, and bought this this thing and it's been really really good and it's what I use to film the wargaming shows when I go to those as well. Right. Yes, so, that's right. You've done a one or two sort of walk around shows, haven't you? Previously. Yeah. I mean, where we're positioned is quite nice because we within an hour you can reach up to York and all the way down to Newark, so we we can cover quite a lot of shows throughout the year. Yeah. And what I've done is I've I've gone along and basically just filmed the games. Yeah. Uh, I was also invited to salute by uh, Ian Ian Fuller, who may be listening. Uh, he he basically uh, gave me some free tickets to salute last year um, because he liked my blog. Oh, okay. Basically, uh, so the I said, well, pass. you know, <laughs> yeah, press pass, basically. Yeah. Uh, so I said, well, you know, I'll I'll come down and I'll film film the the, the day at salute, yeah. and you know, that's that's had quite a lot of views. They they get a lot of people like the the wargaming show videos. Yes, and, yes, me included. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you know, we're not being able to get to any this year because of COVID. The mm. last one was Vapnatak. So to fill the time, I've been doing the after action reports. Um, but yeah, the, the camera. What I was saying is the camera is the thing that I take to those, and it works perfectly well for those. I think it works perfectly well for the stuff I'm doing with games. Uh, like I say, I probably should get a second one, so I'm not having to run the two cameras around all the time, or the one camera, it's changing shots and things. Yeah, no, it, it certainly works um, uh, brilliantly. Uh, ironically, you mentioned Vapnatak or Vapnatak. Vapnatak, yeah. Never known how to pronounce it. I normally get up to that and didn't this year for some reason, and now I'm regretting it because... Uh, obviously, we've had a, a bit of a drought. It's great for the bank yes. balance. <laughs> right. uh, yeah, I mean, it doesn't stop the shopping online, obviously. But uh, <laughs> well, why would it? No, that's not no. real money, is it? <laughs> no, no. That's what I tell the wife. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these are pennies. Pennies. Yeah. Um, Alex, it's been it's been absolutely great to talk to you. Uh, it's uh, what a fascinating backstory you've got with the the archaeology and 
uh, and the wargaming. One one thing I I do with or try to do if I remember it uh, with uh, <laughs> most guests is ask them for a book recommendation to put into the God's Own Scale library. Now oh, I, I, I never give. I always think I should give people prior warning of this so they can have a good right. thing about and i'm waffling now to give you chance now to think <laughs> uh, i think oh, that's already, already got one. Oh, you've got one great great <laughs> yeah it's just um so it's it can be on any it's got to be either historical or military history related or wargaming but uh, it's it's one that we will will add into the god's own scale library I, I don't know you've got one so uh, what what is it that you've got right well i'm going to say uh forgotten victory by gary sheffield simply because it'll turn everything you think about the first world war on your on its head and it did for me i think that that's is is uh is military history and revisionist history which is really really well well researched and were the probably the premier first world war historian in britain i think I, I've, I've got that book and yeah. I've been contemplating for the last two years uh, starting his um, Britain and the First World War course at Wolverhampton. Um, I did it. Do it. You've done it, have you? Yes. You yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I did it when it was at Birmingham. So I, right. uh, I, I graduated in 2013. OK. Uh, yeah, it's... It's really just work at the moment. This yeah, yeah. Um, I can understand. But in... It will happen. Uh, mm. I'm now I'm now setting my sights on next year. Yeah. Um, and I have been in touch with Gary actually on over Twitter. Um, right. A reading list, and uh, so I've I've picked up one or two of those books. But yeah, Forgotten Victory is an incredible read, isn't it? It really is. It really is. Um, I mean, before that, I'd read Mud, Blood, and Poppycock. I don't know if you know that one. Uh, yes. On my shelf. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a great book. Uh, I find it slightly bombastic in places. Mm. Uh, I think Gary's is much more mm. measured, yeah, and 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 uh, and really really readable as well. He's a really good writer. Yes, uh, in the other stuff he's got, I've got by him is is fantastic as well. Really really easy to read. Very understandable language he uses as well. It's really good. You know, it's not uh, set at a too high bar for you know just for the average reader even. Yes, he is. It's not particularly academic, is it? No. But it can be academic, can't it? But do, I was do just going to say there's a wealth of academic work behind it. Yes. Is the uh, yeah, it's it's really readable and 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 yeah, it's just excellent, really good book. And I, whenever anybody talks to me about the First World War, if they haven't read it, I do urge them to read it as a, you know, as a as a first jumping off point. So I think I'd be happy to put that in the library. Unless Brilliant. someone's already put it in. No, no, no. Uh, my okay. copy is is uh, is uh, by my bedside, so I'm going to take your copy, <laughs> your your virtual copy, and put it into the God's Own Scale. Library. Excellent, excellent. I'm, I, I just I'm just going to qualify a point where I said it's not academic because <laughs> no idea if Mr. Gary Sheffield or Professor Gary Sheffield is going to listen to this. I know I know he's a sometime war gamer and he appeared on yes. Henry Hyde's podcast um yeah yeah so that's absolutely no slight it was meant in the fact that it's, it's easy <laughs> to be read by a non-academic yes. as it is by an academic i think, I think yeah, i've dug myself out of that one <laughs> you certainly have you certainly have <laughs> <laughs> so apologies gary if you, if you do happen to stumble across this uh, this niche of a niche podcast <laughs> uh, alex it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you uh, we've rambled on for some considerable time yeah we certainly have 
after, after well, some technological difficulties, which uh, yeah. is nothing new for this podcast. I say, it's to be expected these days, anyway, isn't it? In the uh, in the lockdown period. Yes, very busy uh, in, interwebs out there, aren't there? Yeah, they are. Well, thank um, you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been uh, really good to to talk to you uh, online, and, and I'm looking forward to hearing this. Yeah, well, I, I do um, also get people to sign up uh, to be a returning guest. Mm. So may, maybe when those Prussians have been done, <laughs> we'll have another Four years? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to set you a mission. <laughs> Right, 12 okay. months <laughs> 12 oh, months at the very most <laughs> in 12 months i might have saved up for them <laughs> well uh, yeah or you, you might have returned to uh to uh, the the continent and uh, found something really interesting you can t- tell us about <laughs> yeah well hopefully yeah so yeah i'd be happy to come back my, my family in, in more detail if you want as well you might you might have found that other tank track <laughs> you never there's know a, there's another yeah. one out there somewhere there's, there's got to be one somewhere, yeah. <laughs> right, Alex, thanks very much, and uh, we'll hopefully speak to you soon. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you. Welcome back, then. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that chat as much as I did with uh, Alex, a really knowledgeable guy in his field and some really interesting stuff there around his archaeological work in France, Belgium, and also talking there about his recreation of the Battle of Waterloo. Um, I said at the start I wanted to talk about something um, and I normally script these out pieces uh, just so I know where I'm going really with Uh, what I'm going to say and how I'm going to finish the episode. But I had an email from a listener, uh, Mr. David Smith, who is from New Almaden in California. He sent me a really interesting email. He had a 34-year career teaching American history, so knows one or two things about this subject. It's referring back to an early podcast where I spoke to Mr. Peter Riley, who hopefully will be another returning guest onto the podcast. Long-time listeners may remember that I made a, a, a reference to Indians and Native Americans and uh, making an apology over my use of that phrase. Um, no slight was intended um, on the Native American character, but in that same conversation i talked about my enjoyment of the american civil war as a wargaming period and a period that i've read copious amounts of books on i i am a typical amateur armchair historian i've no qualifications in history i'm sad to say so my opinion and, and my reading is very much on the amateur side of history I dare say that's the same for the vast majority of wargamers. They have an interest in history that leads them to want to play historical games, but not necessarily uh, with that academic background to uh, support the learning that they do uh, throughout their wargaming 
just referring then back to that interview with Peter, and I, I made a comment about the lost cause in that conversation where I was talking about my enjoyment of the American Civil War. And what I'll do is I'll, I'll just read out what David said, because it, it was really thought-provoking for me. It's, it's led me on a journey over the last few weeks, actually, to examine my own thoughts over, over this issue. But David says, your reference to the lost cause would be more concerning than the aforementioned use of Indians. While most histories are written by the winners, this is not the case with the American Civil War. The Lost Cause was a myth created after the war and an exercise in spin doctoring the entire experience. There is no better book to explain this than Bone Kemper's The Myth of the Lost Cause, which will explain how this came about and it'll even tell you why Grant was a significantly better general than Lee. I hope I don't appear as a know-it-all, but I felt that something had to be said. I've just retired from a 34-year career teaching American history, and perhaps I don't know when to stop. Please keep up the good work with the podcasts. They are thoroughly enjoyable. I'm already planning my next six mil project. You and Peter Berry are a big reason why I'm drifting back to God's own scale. In appreciation, David Smith. So that did cause me um, pause for thought. And myself and David have exchanged a couple of emails. And uh, he has actually agreed to come on to the podcast. Um, so he's on the, the growing list of uh, pending guests. But, yeah, it did make me think about my attitude towards the lost cause and slavery and the issue of whether the war was fought over states' rights or was it just slavery. And I must admit that I've always erred on the side of uh, states' rights. Well, that's all right, and that's that's a, a valid opinion, so long as you appreciate that protection of those state right, states' rights was to protect the institution of slavery, because almost... And I can't say for definite on this, but of the states that seceded from the Union in their secession directive, uh, they all make reference to protecting slavery. I don't want to get too political on this, uh, but it is my podcast, so I do feel some sort of freedom to be able to talk about some of the wider issues and, and clearly as well as the COVID pandemic that has swept the world, um, there's also been the tragic death of George Floyd at the hands of police officers in America, leading to the Black Lives Movement, further conversation around the legitimacy of Confederate monuments uh, across the South and the effects that are still being experienced today by people of colour in America. And obviously David's from California. I know that I have listeners in America, so I, I, I'm not going to be uh, partisan on this at all. But if I've caused any offence by anybody who's, who's listened to that episode with Peter where I, I talk about the romance of the Confederacy and the Lost Cause and the Gone with the Wind, 
line of thinking, um, then I, I do apologize. It was really clumsy of me. And if anything good has come of that, then I've gone away and done my homework. Um, there's an excellent YouTube lecture by Bone Kemper um, talking about the myth of the last cause, which lost cause, which I highly recommend you have a look at. Um, just type in the myth of the lost cause into YouTube and numerous lectures and documentaries will come up talking about the lost cause. So this is a, a case where I've held my hand up and, and recognized my own ignorance over this far wider issue of the causes of the American Civil War and what happened in the post-war years, the reconstruction years through into the 20th century leading up to the civil rights movement and what is still going on today uh, in America. The lesson is that we can all still learn, reevaluate, find new perspectives to view these issues from, whether it be events that took place 160 years ago or events that are taking place today. These areas are often very grey areas which lead to debate and discussion. And that is what history is about. Simon Sharma, the historian, during the recent removal of the Coulson statue in Bristol, said that history is about debate and argument. Statues are about veneration. And I accept that there is a, an argument and a discussion to be had around what statues represent. And I'm not saying that my opinion is any more valid than anybody else's around these statues. But if nothing else, I hope that world events going on now and our reading of history in support of our games just continues to create and generate that debate and that discussion from which we can all learn and better understand the subjects that we are studying. So thank you, David. It was a really thought provoking email and you certainly didn't come across as a know-it-all. Quite the opposite. It's led to me being more curious about a subject that I thought I knew more about than I actually did. The American Civil War is still a subject that I read about and I enjoy gaming. But it doesn't hurt to have that extra layer of context around what it is that we're actually recreating on the tabletop. And only may that continue. 
prosperity and independence. Bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that brought life and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. To drag a man in fetters into the grand illuminated temple of liberty and call upon him to join you in joyous anthems were inhuman mockery and sacrilegious irony. Do you mean, citizens, to mock me by asking me to speak today? What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is a constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty, an unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity. Your sounds of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence. Your shouts of liberty and equality, hollow mockery. Your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings, with all your religious parade and solemnity, are to him mere bombast, fraud, Deception, impiety, and hypocrisy. A thin veil to cover up crimes that would, it, that would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation of the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of these United States at this very hour. At a time like this, Scorching irony, not convincing argument, is needed. Oh, had I the ability and could reach the nation's ear, I would today pour forth a stream, a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke. For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It is not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, the earthquake. The feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed and the crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. <laughs>